Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a filmmaker whose work, I believe, helped put the discussion of modern queer horror on the map. His celebrated and award-winning short, Bug Crush, instantly became a quintessential part of contemporary LGBTQ genre discussion, and he brought his masterful eye and penchant for insightful storytelling to his feature films, The Ruins and Jamie Marks' is Dead. Outside of his work as a filmmaker, he's also a lauded fashion and celebrity photographer, with his work appearing in such publications as Vogue, GQ, and W. Please welcome to the show writer, director, and photographer Carter Smith. Hello, hello. Hi, Carter. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so excited to catch you while you're in town. I yes. know you uh, live in Maine most of the time, yeah? Uh, no, between New York and Maine. Okay. Well, uh, with some random LA uh, jaunts now and then. Well, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're here today. And I obviously, with, with all of the things I mentioned in the introduction, we have plenty to talk about. Yes. <laughs> uh, but before we do, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest. And it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Why does horror appeal to you? Why do you think audiences are drawn to the genre? But why horror? Um, I mean, for me, I guess it was probably like a one-two punch of like Stephen King and David Cronenberg. Like I grew up in a very, very small town in Maine and discovered Stephen King at a really early age uh, and was always sort of toting around books of his, like, you know, starting in like fifth or sixth grade. And... um, and, you know, that the, the main that he writes about is very much real. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was I saw, you know, my town and people in my town and I sort of recognized all of it very clearly. Um, and then uh, one I, I mean, I had these paperbacks with me and one afternoon I one of the mothers at my sister's ballet class was like, oh, you like scary stories. And I was <laughs> like, yes. And she's like, I'll, I'll bring you something next week. And the next week she brought me a VHS uh, copy of The Brood. And I was like 12 or 13. Uh, and and I remember watching it and being like, what is this? Like, I had never seen anything like it. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, those, those were the two sort of uh, kind of uh, moments, you know, slash sort of, you know, books and films that that I remember early on. Um, but I think also, I mean, you've talked about it a lot, but the idea of horror being a place for outsiders is, you know, is, I mean, I did not fit in in my town where I grew up and, you know, I did not look like everybody else. I didn't act like everybody else. So, um, you know, I, I sort of, uh, you know, like a lot of horror fans, you know, saw something in the genre that was, you know, where it was okay to be different or okay to be, you know, not the the sort of quintessential American sex-starved teen. <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because obviously you're right. We, uh, Especially when discussing the queer relationship to horror, there's often that discussion of otherness or yeah. like finding the outsider status. But when you're growing up in Maine, which is Stephen King territory, I, yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because yeah. I, I wondered, and you, you confirmed, you know, with the idea of carrying his books around, but does he kind of seem omnipresent when you are, are living in, in the state that he is from you know if you're a genre fan for sure i mean you know yes and no i think that people um i mean this was when you know it was he hadn't written you know you know so many books and um but yeah i mean the thing also about it is that the stories those stories and those people in those towns i mean those are you know those are all based on real towns and a lot of those real towns were maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes away from where I grew up. 
uh, you know, so it's so the man that he was writing about was a man that I knew and recognized really, really clearly. Well, it's interesting because just by sheer coincidence, uh, earlier today, a uh, a producer that I know texted me and he said, what is it that makes a Stephen King adaptation work in your mind? He was just kind of, I don't know why he asked. I mean, yeah. like maybe next year when he produces a King thing, I'll be like, damn it, this could have been mine. Uh, <laughs> but I landed on the idea that w- when King explores king is about characters yeah and it's exactly what you said it's it's the small town it's the people we know that when filmmakers tap into that that's when it works yeah that sense of americana that sense of familiarity it's it's not the monster it's it's the small town but that's got to be have an extra layer when it's actually where you live yeah i mean it's like a it's a specificity of place which is so tangible and so kind of um, and, and as a kid growing up, you know, in Maine and finding someone local that had, you know, was kind of making great work and telling these stories that that I got so wrapped up in, like, I was like, okay, like, you can be from Maine and, you know, do some good shit. Like, you know, like, and there's not, you know, there there, there wasn't a lot of uh, um, other role models like that, really. Uh, and what were those books? You said this was early on. So do you remember like any having specific impact? Um, I mean, I, the the one that I remember the most clearly was probably Salem's Lot mm. because I would I would work for my dad who, during the summers and he was a land surveyor. And so my job was to like go in the woods with him and, you know, figuring out property lines. And I would hold this like elevation pole and I would be alone and I had a machete like for cutting brush down and this pole and I would be completely alone and we would be surveying these lots and there were a and I would have a book with me and there was a one job that we did that was uh on the property of this old abandoned house mm-hmm. and I just remember reading it in the you know noon bright sunshine being eaten alive by mosquitoes and just convinced that you know those vampires were living in that house <laughs> um, I, it was it was it was incredibly real to me. And then at the same time, like you said, uh, someone hands you a copy of The Brood. Yeah. At twelve years old, which to me is definitely not kids' glove horror. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Some serious serious content. Yeah. And I didn't understand it when I saw. I mean, right. I had no idea what I was seeing. Um, but uh, you know, I de- I definitely knew it was unlike anything I'd seen before. And it's it's uh, obviously a, a real, you know, you talk about otherness and outsiderdom, uh, the body horror of it all. Um, we we often, when Cronenberg comes up, talk about there's an inherent queerness to any f- horror filmmaker who dabbles in body horror because there's kind of a body horror connection to being queer in some ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the idea of infection, the I- idea of, you know, your body not always doing what you want it to do or transforming your body on purpose, you know, you know, for, um, whatever reason. I mean, there's, I think that there's a real connection with body horror. Absolutely. Uh, so at this time you're reading Stephen King, you see, uh, this Cronenberg movie that kind of opens the gates. Are you yet thinking storytelling, filmmaking in in any capacity, this is what I want to do? Or you're just, a fan and when did that transition happen yeah i mean I, I was thinking storytelling for sure i would write i would write a ton of short stories mm-hmm. um you know this was before everyone had like a 4k camera in their pocket so i like i didn't i didn't immediately think about uh, making films um but i i definitely wrote stories and i drew comic books and i sort of 
you know, figured out ways to tell stories, uh, you know, with what I had. I had a camera, so I would I would sort of do these like photo comic book type stories, um, which were, uh, you know, I would basically take my little sister and dress her up and cover her in fake blood and pretend like there was some pagan sacrifice in the field behind our like it. You know, it was all elaborate stuff. It was like a graphic novel, but done with uh, with photography have you gone back and looked at any of those since i have a little bit yeah yeah it's it's pretty funny to see i mean um that it was i mean it was very consistent (laughs) the the aesthetic of it um uh and it was definitely uh, something that um my parents were not so uh not that they weren't supportive but they were like you can't cut the heads off of your sister's dolls and hang them from the trees behind <laughs> our house like they you know it was definitely a like what's wrong with him kind of moment and i assume also this is uh during the time when you would have to go take those photos somewhere to be developed oh yeah well i was in i was taking photography class in school so i was doing it in in school um <laughs> i Always am interested when when people talk about their origins, whether it be something like this or the short films they made at home on the camcorder or whatever, about going back and revisiting those things. Because, I, you know, obviously as artists, we always evolve. But yeah. then there's also those things that were always there Let's from the, the beginning. Same, yeah. And so you said that there was at least a consistency to the photography you were doing. Yeah. I mean, it was it was consistent. I mean, I don't know if it has... A whole lot to do with the work that I've gone on to do. I mean, other right. than the fact that it's dark and it's you know a little bit twisted and and sort of yeah disturbing. Right. But you know it was it was very much um, informed by you know my sort of identity as like an outsider. And so you're doing photography. You said you were taking photography class in high school. And um, was photography really sort of your bridge into the world of filmmaking? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I was, I was going to study, um, film at NYU Mm -hmm. and at the, and I, and I didn't think I would get in. And at the last minute, I, I also, um, applied to FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, because I I knew I wanted to live in New York, right? No matter what. Um, and I didn't think I'd get into NYU. So I was like, okay, well I can go like to FIT, if if I don't get in, I don't, I don't really really even know what. I was like, to say was fashion something you were into? I, I, you know, I was. I was reading a lot of magazines. I was I was reading a lot of foreign magazines. I was really into the idea of telling stories with pictures mm-hmm. and and telling elaborate stories with pictures. Um, and at the, I mean, I, I I got into NYU, and but for some reason at the last minute decided to go to FIT, and study fashion design. Interesting. Yeah, like I mean, because I was I'd always been sketching, I'd always been drawing, and I I really like in high school I started drawing a lot of, you know, it was like you know, dresses and I mean it you know from barbarians and and sort of red Sonia you know kind of uh, warrior princesses like up through fashion and I mean I didn't last long. It was one semester and I was like, Ugh, I you know this I'm not a fashion designer nor do I want to be. I was gonna say it's a fairly cutthroat world. Yeah. Well, and, and so I switched to into the photography program at FIT. And so that that is sort of the genesis of your work as a fashion photographer then. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I, um, I liked taking pictures and I liked sort of creating stories and creating worlds and, you know, doing the hair and the makeup and the wardrobe and sort of creating something from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And it also, like at the time, it seemed more accessible than than film, right? Uh, for some reason, um, you know, even in deciding to to not go to NYU, like I didn't want to do a year of core studies before I got to take a film class. So, and I've never really gotten an opportunity to chat uh, with with someone whose work in photography is as profound as yours is. And like we've had photographers on the show before, but uh, are there photographers whose work you looked to that kind of helped establish your your own? Yeah, I mean, at the time, I was um, I was really in love with all of like Peter Lindbergh and Stephen Mizell and you know, sort of these guys that were that were telling stories in fashion magazines and they would be like, you know, 20, 30 page stories, uh, you know, where like Peter Lindbergh did one where there was, you know, there was a model and then there was an alien and a spaceship that landed in the desert and she befriended the alien and took him in. Like I was in love with that kind of thing. I was, you know, I wasn't so much interested in clothes. Right. Really. I was interested in like the, the magazine as a format for telling a story. So tell me a little bit about the time that you first got to do one of those yourself um well I spent I mean I spent a lot of time you know struggling and you know trying to make it work and uh, I used to do this um this model search thing where we would we would try there would be this modeling convention in you know say Atlanta and they would scout every city slash town within three hours in any direction of Atlanta and try to convince these kids to come to this modeling convention. Like a Barbizon kind of thing? Uh, yeah, it was, li- it was like that. Right. Um, and it was that you had to pay to go to the convention because there was going to be agents there and, you know, right. and they would say, and it's in your best interest to, to come with professional pictures and our photographers coming, th- you know, to your town. Right. So I would go and I would do that and shoot like 10, 12, 13 kids a day, every right. day for, you know, two, three months at a time um, in preparation for one of these things. But I was I was also shooting, like, interesting, like, if the redneck boyfriend showed up and he was really cool looking, I would be like, oh, can I take some pictures of you? Right. Or we would always, I would travel with a hair and makeup artist and we would always go to, like, the skate park and find kids to shoot. Or we sort of would do these portraits on on the road. Um, and uh, Edward Enifel, who was at ID Magazine at the time, uh, saw those pictures and uh, and ran them as a story in the magazine, like just the, sort of my personal work. So it wasn't even something that you were commissioned specifically for the magazine. He just liked this work. He saw this body of work and he was like, I want to, you know, we had a good meeting. And then like a week later, he called me and was like, I can't stop thinking about those pictures. Can I run them as a story in ID? And this is when ID was like the coolest magazine in the world i mean that's got to be extremely gratifying yeah. it was a, yeah it was it was the it was kind of a best case scenario because like the day that that magazine came out um i got the levi's campaign and i got a job shooting for vogue and like you know it was it by no means was overnight because right. i'd been shooting and sort of trying to to get stuff to happen for years but with that one story coming out it it you know it felt like it was overnight and do you have a particular photo series uh, that's a personal favorite from that era? Or sometimes I often think too, like John Waters always says his favorite movie is the next one he's making. Yeah, and I, is that true too of of this or the uh, ones? with photography? Not not as much because with you know that was back during a time when when magazines they had 
crazy huge budgets and you know you could do a story for w magazine which was like 30 pages long right you know and 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 you could really tell a story like i we used to approach them or i did anyway as like sort of a mini series like i was like okay this is like a mini series this is about an american gi that's stationed in shanghai and he falls in love with a singer at the beijing opera and he (laughs) and you know they fall in love and then she takes him home to her hometown and like and this is a story we did for w and you know obviously there's no words there's no story but it was very much like plotted out like a you know, like a television miniseries. But that's awesome because then here you are, you have photo series and ID and Vogue and W and I can kind of see this laying the groundwork for what would eventually be film because you are constructing visual narratives. Yeah, and and you're working, I mean, the thing that was so incredible about it also was that you're also working with a team of people right. you're working with you know wardrobe and hair and makeup and set designers and and clients and you know you're working with a team of people i mean it's nothing compared to the size of a film right. crew but you get very used to communicating what it is that you want to see you know and sort of collaborating with people right and so you're already accustomed a little bit to set culture yeah so tell me a little bit then about that transition from these photo series to that decision to make yeah. the first film. Well, I mean, I read uh, the short story Bug Crush mm-hmm. in the anthology Queer Fear, or maybe I think it might have been Queer Fear too. I can't remember which, right. which volume it was. But I read that short story and I was like, this is my film. Like I have not made a film yet and I don't know why. And but this is going to be it, the one that I make first. So you don't really know what it was specifically. You were just like, it, you read it and you're like, this is the one. Yeah, it, literally. I mean, I didn't know anything about optioning anything or, you know, I mean, I, I read it. I started adapting it right away and I called all my friends at my production designer and hair and makeup. And I was like, we are making a movie and it's called Bug Crush. And uh, I mean, luckily, Scott uh, Trelevin, who wrote the short story, was was, you know, really um, agreeable. And, and we, I was able to get the, you know, the rights to the story, but, you know, I, I was very much made it with the team of people that I had already been working with for, for years. Well, and I, I mean, I understand why he was agreeable because really when Bug Crush was made, queer horror shorts or queer horror in general and in, in a wider film festival way was not something that was happening. Yeah. Lot. No, I'd never seen, I mean, anything in the, in that specific genre before. And was there ever concern while making this? Like what life will this have? How will it be tricky to get this places? Yeah. I mean, I, I personally, I was like, okay, this is a weird, dark little story that like me and like 15 other people are going to like a lot. Right. And that'll be sort of the, you know, the life of it. Um, But, you know, because I was, I I mean, I financed it myself, so I didn't have anyone to answer to. Right. So I I sort of knew that, that, you know, there there weren't any uh, questions coming from outside. And I was super surprised to talk to audiences after watching it and and sort of realize that there was something universal about it. Like it it wasn't... uh, it didn't appeal only to queer horror fans. I mean, even though they didn't have a name yet, you know what I mean? But like, I expected it to be much more specific. And, you know, I found that like 
women in their 40s would come up to me and like talk to me about it. Like, like random, you know, people that I would have never expected to respond to it did. Um, and I think it's, I think, you know, no matter where you come from or, or you know, how you identify, um, the idea of wanting something that's not good for you or the idea of, of having a crush on someone that's not good for you or, or sort of falling for someone, like that's universal, I think. Absolutely. And I, w- I want to touch on that in just a moment, but one of the things that I wanted to ask about, and it's sort of like one of those, well, obviously questions, but I, you know, I, I'm going to put it out there. The film is so visually lush and you know there there is such an aesthetic and atmosphere that you curated so i'm assuming that you brought a lot of the world of photography that you were doing for these magazines and applied it to to making bug crush yeah i mean you know in terms of i I, you know i never there was never any question about where to put the camera or what you know what i wanted it to look like or what i wanted the hair and makeup to look like or the wardrobe i mean all of that was was um was something I felt very confident and sort of comfortable uh, doing. I mean, I did work with the DP on it. Darren Liu shot it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's beautiful. And it was, for me, it was so nice to give the camera to someone else, you know, to just sort of, to to be able to work with actors and, and, and not have to deal with the technicalities of lighting and camera and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Is there an element, though, as a photographer where it's a little hard to let go? Uh, I think that it might have been if uh, Darren had been less collaborative. Right. You know, if, if, if you're working with someone who who sort of isn't up for, you know, being OK with me coming up and being like, actually, I, you know, the camera should be like six inches lower. Right. Like if they're OK with that, then, you know, then it works fine. Um, but no, I mean, I, I find it incredibly liberating to to, to let go of the camera. Uh, one of the things you know you had you had mentioned about the universal nature of Bug Crush and the idea that you know straight guys and women and gay people were and queer people are talking to about this film, and I was thinking about it, uh, especially also with relation to uh, Jamie Marks's Dead later, and how there is sort of a connective tissue between those films mm-hmm. about sort of the struggles of adolescence. Yeah, uh, and. I think that maybe the universal connection yeah. that's made is the idea that we're all a little other, I guess, when, when we're... Especially when we're adolescents. Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's when we none of us fit in exactly. I mean, most of us don't fit in. <laughs> and I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, it's so profound in Bug Crush and obviously in a, in a different way is, is the backbone of Jamie Marks is dead. Yeah. But... Uh, is that why you were drawn to this material, the idea that you yourself as an adolescent felt outside and that you, you connected to it in that way? Yeah, pro- I mean, uh, probably, you know, I mean, at the time I was responding to the story, I mean, right. at least with Bug Crush, um, and saw myself very much in that in that sort of innocent lead character kid, um, Ben. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it was, you know, it also, it, it's sort of, become that also because we went and shot at my high school right like that is you know i mean it's all you know that that is all very familiar um yeah you inadvertently layered the psychology into yeah, it, whether you wanted yeah, to yeah and or only not. because i was you know it was the easiest place to get permission to you know to shoot um but yeah i mean i think that i think that that's definitely it's also something with jamie marks is dead right you know it's the same you know sort of outsider 
um, adolescent struggle. I mean, it's 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 definitely working in the same wheelhouse. Yeah, and I, is, with regard to Bug Crush, I am curious too because you know here you said it's a movie that you thought you were making it for yourself, and you know maybe this small group of people will like it, but then it goes to Sundance. Yeah, and it wins an award. Yeah, and it gets this traction. Yeah, and it's a movie that still gets referenced. You know, in the intro, I said it's like part of the discussion of of modern queer horror. Yeah. What's that like? How do you feel, you know, knowing that one, you made something, because short films don't often have the life (laughs) that Bug Crush has. Yeah. Let alone the fact that it's still part of the conversation. I'm, did you even conceive that you would still be talking about it? No, I, I, I imagined. I mean, I didn't even have a festival plan for it. I mean, we we finished it, and you know, literally looked up and said, "Oh, what festivals should we submit it to?" And and it was, you know, the the next deadline was Sundance, and right. so it wasn't even like a plan. Honestly, it was. Um, um, you know, it, it, I never would have imagined that it would have the legs and the life that it did. Actually, one of my favorite bug crush encounters was, uh, so I met someone at a dinner party and they, uh, they, when they found out that I had made bug crush, she was like, dude, it's like that movie. If you're having a party and you want everyone to go home, you say, I've got this amazing short, I'm going to put it on and we're going to watch it. And then you put on Bug Crush and then it ends and then everyone's silent and then they want to go home. I was like, okay, like that's I'll I'll take that. Uh, Well, I can actually attest to that because this year at Halloween, um, we uh, my roommate and I were showing people an array of different horror shorts. And one of them that we screened for everybody was Bug Crush. And what's really fascinating is no one went home. afterwards, Yeah. But you can feel kind of the shift because people want to talk about it. Yeah. Because I think it taps into a core of uh, the viewer each in different ways. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a testament to to the art, really. Yeah. I mean, different people take, you know, I mean, to me, um, it was kind of a happy ending. Like, if you haven't read the story right. that it's based on, then, you know, the film has a much more optimistic ending than the short story. Uh, do people think it's a happy ending, though? <laughs> no one ever. When I try to pass it off as a happy ending, they, they kind of laugh. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad to at least provide the platform for, for you to state that piece. Yeah. Uh, I, I read somewhere that you encountered people who cosplayed as, as the yeah. characters. I would, I would, I mean, I haven't done a ton of conventions or anything, but I would, there was this group of kids that made the, their bug pendants and, you know, cosplayed as, as Grant, the character from from the movie. So it was really bizarre. That's awesome. Uh, so from Bug Crush, and it's the c- continuing discussion, uh, is is that when The Ruins happens? Is The, is the Ruins a result of yeah, Bug Crush? Very, yeah, d- I mean, directly. It was, um, um, it you know, I did the whole post-Sundance, you know, meeting the agents and mm-hmm. doing all those meetings and um, and couldn't find a like a, a proper script that I could I was really excited about you know there was a lot of like really horrible uh genre scripts that I was reading and um the ruins was the first one that I read and I was like oh this is this is interesting this is really good um and had you read the book I I had because I I got the script like literally the you know the same week that I was reading the book I got the script and I was like oh like I'm reading this book I mean it was came out in hardcover it was the first week when it had first come out so um Scott 
uh, Smith, who wrote the book, also did the adaptation. And, you know, it was a DreamWorks film. And I was, you know, I mean, I, I was like, I'm never going to get this job. But the process of going in and meeting on it and whatever that entails, like, I'm curious to know what that's like. Because I, I sort of figured I would make, like, weird, more weird little indies. Right. Um, but I was like, okay, well, you know, if, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it for a project that I am, I really care about and I really want to do. So I, I'll... I'll do I'll do it for the ruins and about a year of meetings later you know probably like 9 10 11 meetings um it took me that long to get the you know to get the job um you know and over the course of that year there was all you know there was other directors attached to it and they just kept you know they kept falling off or not working out and I mean I was the very first person they met with on the film you know, but like right. not the obvious choice, you know, by any means. Right. Um, but, it, you know, it was it was all because of Bug Crush for sure. And so that's a real environment shift, though. The idea yeah. that, you know, you find this short story that you emotionally connect to and you just kind of take it upon yourself. I'm going to yeah. make this. And then yeah. by the virtue of connecting with the author who's like cool with it, you go and you shoot it at your high school in the town that you grew up in. And then the behemoth, yeah, that is this next project. Yeah, just I can't even imagine sort of like the culture shock of of, yeah. <laughs> of going from uh, a movie that you curated yourself to something like that. Now I'm I'm wondering if uh, because you had dealt with big publications before, if you were sort of ready for that. I I was definitely I was definitely more prepared for the sort of meeting side of it and the idea of of listening to people and their opinions and, 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 and kind of, you know, not being like a temperamental art, you know, kind of artist who's, you know, is says, I, you know, I want to do this. You know I mean? I, I was very keen to the, the culture of, of advertising and working uh, with clients. Right. And I think that was a skill that came in really handy, you know, during that process more so in, in the, in the beginning, uh, you know, pre and, and post, uh, part of the process, um, but yeah, that, I mean that that was definitely um, a good kind of skill to have in my back pocket. Well, the ruins, uh, both the novel and the film, goes uh, to really uh, grotesque, gory places. Yeah. Um, more so than major studio films often do. Yeah, was that a challenge to get some of that material across? Um, you know. It kind of was. I mean, because also DreamWorks doesn't really make horror movies. No, no. that's right. Like of all um, the labels, <laughs> yeah, in I mean, studios, that's, that's not the one you would think of. So, so um, Ben Stiller uh, directed a Simple Plan, which was Scott's first novel, mm-hmm. and so Scott let him, I guess, read an option, The Ruins, before it came out. Uh, Ben's production company, Red Hour, uh, had a production deal with DreamWorks. And so they were making The Ruins, you know, as as part of that production deal, even though it wasn't quite squarely in what they do. Right. Um, I mean, and I remember, like, at one point during post, like, because I turned in a really brutal, brutal movie. Like, it, you know, it, there's there's a lot of violence and there's a lot, it, you know, it's bleak. It's yes. not, like, it's, it's, it's pretty um, gut-wrenching. Um, and you know, there was at one point a conversation about like, well, let's just get rid of the amputations and like, we'll lose this and we'll lose that. And I was like, 
you know, we all read the same script. Right. And we all, you know, set out to make the same movie. And, you know, you, you can't really go back now. <laughs> you know, it was it was odd. But it's interesting, isn't it, when you're in these scenarios where it's seemingly everyone's on the same page. Yeah. And then after the fact. Well, they, you know, you see the reality of cutting someone's legs off. Right. Like in the middle of the, like in the, you know, 12 o'clock at noon in the bright sunshine with a rusty knife and a, you know, a metal uh, frying pan. Like, you know, it, it's it. It's it's a lot. It's less from pa- the studio it's less that, palatable than yeah. you might think. I was gonna say from the studio that brought you Shrek. Yeah. Uh, also, yeah. Uh, dangerous amputation. Yeah. I mean, I will say that that you know the course of making the movie was amazing because we shot in Australia, and you know the studio was so supportive of 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 everything. Right. I mean, like, you know, it was, it was, I mean, part of it, I think is we were just so far away and, you know, there, it was, we were sort of operating under the radar in, mm-hmm. a, in a way, but, um, I mean, I, it was very much like, you know, you make the movie that you want to make with this script. Right. right. Which was amazing. And I'm curious because when you think about Bug Crush and then Jamie Marks is dead, uh, there are queer elements to both of those. And I, I read recently in an interview uh, that you did for QueerHorrorMovies.com that uh, it isn't necessarily queerness that attracts you to a, a project, but more so characters and situation. Yeah. But I think as artists, we always bring a little bit of ourselves to everything that we do. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering, is there, to you, just like for conjecture, is is there a queerness at all to The Ruins? Um, I mean, the queerness to the ruins is me, basically. Like, you know, that's that's the queer part. Right. Um, you know, I, I think that just in, you know, as a gay man making choices about how to photograph things and how to like how to tell this story, like, I mean, I certainly didn't, you know, plant anything. You know, there, it's not like there was some, you know, right. kind of queerness that I was trying to put there um but you know by the nature of who it was that was making the movie you know it's i think it's kind of inherently queer you know yeah there's just uh, there's just something about uh for me the idea of, of an environment being dangerous into itself yeah uh, that i was just wondering i'm like hmm maybe it's just the places we go that are are, are deadly yeah yeah well i mean you know one one and i'll never forget this that you know it, like in the ruins, you know, there's a couple of scenes where they're getting ready to leave for the day and they're right. in their hotel rooms and they're, you know, they're showering and they're, and, you know, one of our girls was naked getting ready and, you know, then you go to the other room and one of the guys was naked getting ready and it became this back and forth conversation that, you know, kind of turned into one of the only real conflicts on the entire project about whether or not we could keep his butt in, you know, in the cut. And I was like, of course we're going to keep his butt. You know, he's naked, he's getting dressed. And, you know, and it was just, and it didn't, didn't end up in the cut because it, you know, it made people uncomfortable. And what is that about? I mean, I'm just more so in, in the wider zeitgeist. Why are we still so afraid of male nudity? Yeah. Well, this, I mean, this was, was also, you know, this was, you know, 10 years ago. Right. So, it, I think things have changed since then, hopefully. 
but it's still always a thing. You know, the Game of Thrones, it's always like a discussion. Like, are we going to have equal male nudity to the female nudity? Yeah. You see the articles in Hollywood Reporter and Variety, and it's like we have uh, been putting uh, the female body uh, in all all states in cinema forever. Yeah. And it's still kind of like the secret. Yeah titillation yeah, I don't know. And, I, and I was just like you know they were like no you, it's gonna be really big on the movie screen it's gonna be a really big butt and I was like I, I know it is right like, it, and it looks good like it's a good butt like it's not like it's a butt that you don't want to look at <laughs> yeah I was gonna say I don't know audiences have ever really been upset about a good looking butt yeah regardless yeah <laughs> so I've alluded to it a few times um but Jamie Marks is dead yeah uh, is a movie that I uh, am, am, am very fond of. It is uh, not only a film that I listed uh, this past year when I was asked by Dread Central to do a guest piece on the 10 queer horror movies that I think people should see, uh, but it was also my favorite movie of the year that it came out because oh, nice. I you. thought, uh, well, thank you. I think that it was so powerful Um in the idea of of just dealing with identity and um, this kind of like a powerful statement on death and dying, but it's a very quiet movie yeah. as opposed to something like The Ruins. Yeah. So talk to me about the shift in tone and, and the movement towards that. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, the, the tone, I think, comes, again, very much from the source material. Right. Like, you know, it's based on uh, the novel One for Sorrow by Christopher Barzak, and it's a very quiet, thoughtful novel mm-hmm. um and, and it's sort of this you know bleak uh deserted town that the story takes place in and um you know and and although it has horror elements like i kind of don't really consider it a horror film necessarily i mean it's a ghost story and and part of what i have always loved about ghost stories is that that you know they don't have to be scary to work they can be sad they can be you know they can be suspenseful they can be like a ghost a ghost story sort of has liberty to to be maybe more emotional than than you know other types of of you know scary movies um you know but the i mean i think that the you know the character of jamie marks uh and and his relationship with with adam the main character like that you know it, it was a under understated sort of um kind of uh, study of longing and mm-hmm. loneliness and and you know both of those things are are pretty quiet when you when you think about it well also true what you're saying about ghost stories they don't have to be scary to be to have impact uh and the idea that i guess there are a lot of different ways to be haunted and to haunt yeah and uh when you long for somebody from afar, there's there's so much power to that. Yeah, and um, I I just really think that uh, it taps into something that is is really not discussed often enough when you look at genre material, but queer cinema as well. This idea of um, just how many people feel lost in their own lives. Yeah. Um. And just thinking about both that and Bug Crush, they're they're really stories about identity, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, there's stories about identity. There are stories about outsiders. I right. mean, they're, they're sort of. I mean, I see them as sort of flip sides, you know, of the same coin. I mean, it's they're both also um, stories that I adapted myself. Right. Uh, they're both stories that I shot with the same DP. Like, there's a lot that they have in common. You know, the editor and sound designer on Jamie Marks was also the sound designer on Bug Crush. Um, you know, so they very much. I think it was definitely me. Uh, kind of working through whatever teenage anxiety residue, you know, I still, you know, kind of hadn't, uh, hadn't, hadn't worked out. Do you, uh, do you feel like you worked it out? I, I, I mean, or do we ever, I, I don't know if we ever do. I mean, I think that, I think that like, you know, especially as a gay kid, mm-hmm. like that high school experience is so charged and so, um, unsettling and confusing and scary and exciting and and you know a lot of that stuff stays with you forever i feel like and i think maybe that's why the discussion keeps returning to bug crush yeah. and the idea that uh jamie marks has this resonance is that especially for queer kids we don't ever really shake it yeah and you know we can do all of these things but there's that part of you that you are kind of trying to reclaim what you lost, yeah. but you can never get it back. Yeah. That's that's the real ghost story, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Um so tell me a little bit about all the dead boys. Oh. Um so after uh you know working in photography for you know a long time and working with a lot of advertising agencies and celebrities and sort of you know the, my fashion pictures are very pretty and very, you know, friendly and positive, you know, they're kind of, you know, girls in fields smiling and, you know, <laughs> celebrities and, and, and I got so kind of sick of doing these shoots with like 20 or 30 people and everyone at the monitor and like, it just sort of, I lost what I loved about taking pictures. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided and I and I had never like I hadn't for a long time just taken pictures that that for myself. Right. Um and so I was like okay, I'm going to I'm going to start to do something that is you know just for me. And you know, it also kind of I was also had always have always been fascinated with uh, special effects makeup. You know, back to like Fangoria days of reading right. about it and so I was like okay, I'm going to like work out my inner special effects makeup artist and you know at the same time and then take pictures of of my projects and right. these projects uh were boys um and so i was like okay i'm going to i'm going to start this series and it's basically just going to be me and the person i'm photographing and i'm going to do their makeup whether it's you know bruising or wounds or so you did all the makeup yourself all the makeup myself yeah i mean and and i am by no means a you know a good makeup artist but like i can do a bruise i can i can i definitely am being the one that photographs uh them i can hide a multitude of sins you know with the right light right um and so it was just it was a series of like basically um nudes that you know all kind of lived in this world where uh things were really sexy but also really scary and uh, i was kind of fascinated by the line of of like where those two worlds overlap 
And that seems to be something thematically that is a through line of a lot of your work. This kind of place where horror and sex meet. Yeah. And what is that line? Yeah. I I mean, I've... I, I don't know. I mean, it's, you know, sex, but also beauty. Right. Like, you know, because I think it's just for me, it's just as much about like images that you create that are breathtakingly beautiful, even even when they're horrific. Right. You know? Because I think that one of the things that I, I I have noticed is is you do kind of have an attention to uh, finding the beauty in the grotesque. Yeah. And um there is something I think to be said about that kind of thin line between sex and beauty and horror. And maybe it's, it's something that, you know, all of, all of the genre kind of plays with in, in different yeah, ways. Well, cause I mean, horror so much is about making people feel uncomfortable right? and making people, you know, feel on edge and, and getting sort of a physical reaction out of them and, you know, making them uncomfortable, you know, it's even uh, more extreme if they're also kind of thinking, oh, well, this is kind of sexy, you know, but I don't know if I should be saying that. And, um, you know, so like there's, there's this weird line that, um, you know, with all the dead boys that I just, I mean, from the beginning, that was kind of what I wanted to, to work out and explore. And in some ways, it kind of brings us full circle back to our discussion of Cronenberg. Yeah. Because that... The Brood is the most beautiful film ever made. I mean, it's like, you know, the lighting and the sets and the hair and the makeup. And I mean, that's not anything that I noticed when I saw it, you know, the first time. But like now watching it, you know, it's it's absolutely gorgeous. Well, and he always had such a great attention to the beauty and the grotesquery. Yeah. You like watch those films. The brood has some very fabulous and disturbing moments of people and their connection to their bodies. Yeah. But even sort of the strange psychosexual relationships in dead ringers that yeah. people have, or I even think how smart he was in rabid to uh, cast an adult film star, yeah. knowing that people were probably coming to see Marilyn Chambers because they knew her from behind the green door yeah. for these sexual things. Yeah. And he took that concept of sexuality and hit us with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. I'm just really fascinated by all all of these things kind of being a, a perfect storm. Uh, and especially in, uh, you know, you said that film had impact and now your work is, is reflecting kind of that line. Yeah. Well, I still... I still have yet to see like a true gay body horror film. Well, Carter. I mean, to, I mean, like, believe me, there's there's a couple yeah. in me that have not come out yet. But if there's something that I'm missing, you have to tell me. I was gonna say because uh, we're maybe maybe this is your your next thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so from all the dead boys, you did a short called Sucker. Um, yeah, you know what, Sucker was, um, cause all the dead boys, I mean, I, I shot stills for it and always kind of in the back of my mind, I was like, you know, this world that I'm sort of creating, mm-hmm. um, would be great if, if, it, you know, it could come to life and could be sort of something more than just stills. I mean, right. a- after doing it for several years, um, and someone, a video native magazine, um, which is a magazine, I guess, that exists only online. It's an online sort of video only uh, piece. They asked me to do something and they said, just do, you know, do whatever you want. You know, we're going to launch on Halloween. And, um, you know, so I decided to do like a little All the Dead Boys film. And Sucker was, uh, you know, I, I'd been working on, you know, like a web series idea about 
that took place in that world. And so it was, and it was very much like shooting all the dead boys. It was, it was me, uh, the, you know, the, the actors that, you know, the two actors, Mm -hmm. one other person and, you know, one sound person. I mean, it was a crew of like three people. Um, and we made that, you know, over one very long night in Atlantic city, you know, with $0 and zero production and no permits and no assistance and no, you know, and it was sort of in the spirit of all the dead boys. Well, and it also feels in some way a culmination of that long ago discussion of taking a series of photographs and telling the story. And here's a series of photographs that you then transformed into a film. Yeah. Uh, and there, there's got to be something cool about that, knowing that all of these elements keep returning. Yeah, well, and it's also, I mean, it's it's cool to have the stills as you know, because making movies is so hard. Like, it takes a long time, and it's never as easy as you want it to be. Right. But there's something that is so nice about taking photographs that's, you know, that's accessible. It's I can I can call up someone and say, let's you know, let's do some pictures tomorrow. Right. And you know. And if I have some like weird little prosthetic I want that I want to try out, like or some like I want to try, you know, some new blood eye drops that I ordered online, you know, I mean, it's like I just it, it's totally easy to to make it happen in a way that that making films uh, doesn't always feel. Now is all the dead boys still ongoing? It's I am it's it's ongoing, but um, I am in the middle now of sort of revamping the site so that it can host uh, video content as well. Um, so it's all the deadboys.com. It's still there, but it's just sort of in a holding pattern until I get that. Uh, well, it's waiting to come back. Yes, from the it's, grave. it's waiting to come back. I mean, it's, I'm still making content for it, um, right. but I'm just sort of banking it and, uh, you know, sort of sitting on it until, I don't know, maybe it'll be a book. Maybe it'll be, you know, who knows what it'll be. Well, I can't wait to see. Yeah, it'll uh, be sexy and dark and, you know, fucked up for sure. Well, sexy, dark, and fucked up are uh, three of my favorite things. Perfect. That's really what, what we live for here at Dead for Filth. Um, so throughout the conversation, um, we talked a little about uh, the films that you've made as well as, you know, we, we spoke a lot about David Cronenberg and, and how that uh, influenced you. But what about recently? What have you seen recently that you uh, are inspired by or that you just really dig? What's uh, what's rocking um, the needle? I... Um, I recently saw, I mean, not that recently, but I saw Climax. Oh, uh, the Gaspar Noe. Yeah, film? have you yeah. seen it? It's amazing. It's yeah. I, I, like I, I could not shake it, and still haven't. I mean, it's months ago, and I still think about it. Um, it's crazy. I, I mean, I think that's it's it's why I was always too afraid to do Acid, you know, that <laughs> movie because I because I, I, yeah. I my biggest fear is that that movie would happen to me. Um, so there's that. There's. Um, I read um, Cabin at the End of the World by Paul Tremblay. Yes. Uh, I, I Speaking of queer horror. Yeah. In, in, well, I guess directly queer horror. Yeah. 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 And, and that, I mean, again, that book was, I mean, I, I didn't really know his work, but I read it and was just kind of blown away, like, and surprised by the queer element um, and how sort of, um, uh, not matter of fact, but like it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the part, the, you know, the, the main thrust of the story the fact right. that the two main characters were a gay married couple was was treated as um 
you know, just kind of a story element. It wasn't it wasn't what the book was about. Well, is that, I guess, what we really would like to move towards? Yeah. Not, not to make movies that, you know, this is my gay movie, but yeah. this is a movie that coincidentally happens to have gay characters. In yeah. It. Well, and, and a lot of I mean, a, a lot of the times that, you know, it's, you fall into that trap of or you, you find stuff that is is either, you know, it's a gay movie or this character is the gay character. And, you know, what I long for in books and movies is, you know, is to see characters that that are defined by something other than their sexuality. Like that's, right. you know, your sexuality is part of who you are, obviously, always. But it doesn't have to be the only thing that defines you. Right. And I think it also leads to uh, fascinating almost kids glove curation with how we deal with some of these these subgenres. Yeah. Because you go to gay festivals and they seem to want to have only a specific kind of gay story. A type of gay story, yeah. Uh did you ever run into issues with that submitting some of these? Well, I mean Bug Crush was was like it was odd because it wasn't I mean it was sort of Accepted at gay festivals. I mean, it played at a bunch of them, but it always right. left people feeling really weird. And right. they weren't, you know, it was very different from all the other uh, stuff that got programmed. Um, and strangely, I think that that sort of non-gay festivals responded to it better than gay festivals did. And, you know, I think that part of it was that um, they're, they're expecting a certain type of film and when they're not, right. when they're not audiences, I mean, and maybe that's less so now, but I've found that, you know, at the time they wanted, you know, like a coming out, a movie. coming out with, you know, cute blonde, you know, boys that had like long for, you know, someone on their track team. And, you know, while my story bug crush was very much like it, you know, it kind of fit those parameters. Like it right. didn't, it didn't have the same. Yeah. Didn't necessarily end the <laughs> it way. It didn't end yeah. the same way. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, uh, Jamie Marks, uh, I think, uh, probably a gay audience connected with a little bit more with that because it was, you know, maybe a little more hopeful, maybe a little bit more emotional, no, not more emotional, but, um, it was a kinder sort of gentler, uh, version of the same type of story. Right. I'm just curious, uh, you know, and and we touched upon that a little bit, is if, if gay audiences have a resistance to darker material. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if there's a definitive answer for that. Yeah. I mean, I think I don't I don't think that I mean, I think that any I mean, I think it's the person. It's not the yeah. audience. I mean, I love yeah. dark material. Yeah. And I mean, I think that just the fact that 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 queer horror is, you know, so much of a thing. now in a way that like we've always been here we've always liked these movies and the fact that we're talking about it and the fact that we're sort of uh, you know sort of creating a community around it um is is super interesting it is and what's you know i've seen resistance of course because on the internet there's always resistance to everything that ever happens always uh but it's also interesting to see the rebuttal where you know when people say well why did we always have to be having this discussion? You know, why why do we have to be talking about queer horror? I always want to point out to people, well, horror has always been queer. Yeah. You're just now catching on to the fact. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's literally... And we're now just giving it a name. Exactly. I mean, it's literally the genre of of heightened sensibilities and, and otherness, and who knows all of that better than us? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, Carter, what are you working on these days that you can tell us about? 
um, that I can tell you about. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I sort of, I'm, I mean, I do this sort of back and forth between uh, stills mm-hmm. still um, and, and film stuff. So, I mean, I'm, I'm writing stuff. Uh, I have a very queer body horror uh, project that I'm, you know, working on now. Um, and then some stuff that I can't quite talk about yet that's super exciting. Well, I uh, will definitely be keeping my eyes and ears open for everything. Uh, where can people find you? Um, uh, I'm mostly on Instagram. Okay. Uh, I am Carter Bedlow Smith uh, or All the Dead Boys. But I think All the Dead Boys is all underscore the underscore like that. So all the like underscores. Yeah, I was, I was All the Dead Boys and then Instagram kicked me off for uh, – questionable content oh yeah well i think there's th- there's no bad publicity in the world of yeah yeah i mean other than the fact that i lost i mean literally all the content was gone and oh shit yeah i mean it was i mean it's my content so i right. have it all but it was kind of one of those things where it was like oh okay uh i guess you didn't like that account <laughs> well then listeners please go and and you know build back up all the dead boys on instagram yeah Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule uh, to come talk to us today. I really appreciate it. And, Thank uh, you so much for having me. It was a real honor. I'm Michael Verratti. This is Dead for Filth. Yours always in Glam and Gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelletione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.